And now for something purposely positive. Welcome to Strive to Thrive, the Purposely Positive Podcast, brought to you by TonyWCoaching.com, where your greatest success is right in front of you. This is Tony Wexler, your host, and on this podcast, we talk about positive issues to bring positive content into the world. How many of us really listen when people are talking? Most of us are on autopilot. And we're thinking about what we're going to do later, maybe what we're going to have for dinner, or sometimes we're just listening to respond. But we could all use to learn better listening skills. But today, we're going to talk about listening to our elders and really learning from what they have to say. On today's episode, my friend Yvonne is going to tell you some of her stories from her book, Flying with Dad. As you listen, I hope it inspires you to speak with those members of what we refer to as the greatest generation. See, these people have a lot to say, and they can truly inspire us, especially if we really listen. Yvonne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's so good to have you here, and I'm excited to hear about your book and uh, how you came to write it. It's an interesting story as far as I'm concerned, of course, but... I live on the eastern side of Pennsylvania, and my father lived on the western side. And so our way of connecting uh, was always a phone call. After we got through his medical treatments and his dialysis treatments and how he was receiving home care and how that was going, after we got through those kinds of things, we stalled. And it was hard for us to carry on a conversation that I would say had some meaning. Now, it was different with my brother and sister because they were both really sports fans. So they could get into that with dad. On one dark January night, for whatever reason, I don't know, it's a mystery. Dad opened up and told me this quirky, funny, off the wall story about being in World War II. And in the midst of his conversation, I said, Dad, let me go get a pencil and paper. I want to take notes. And he said, what the hell do you want to do that for? I said, this is really good stuff. I think the family would enjoy reading this. So that was the start. The very next week on the phone, I started it with, Dad, if you're willing, start at the beginning. How did you get into the war? And with that prompt, story after story after story started rolling off my dad's tongue. I was absolutely fascinated. And of course, there was this listening on my part you know, where I just sat back and took notes. And if he said something that I didn't understand, I would ask an open-ended question. But that's really how the book came to be. At some point, when I was looking at the stories that he provided, I thought, this is a book. Here I have this ordinary GI. He's not Hitler. He's not Eisenhower. He's not 
FDR. He's not any of these big World War II personalities. He's just one of these ordinary GIs that went and did the job that he thought he had to do. And so I started searching on the internet to see if there was anything like what I was capturing from my dad. And I didn't find it. So that's when the germ of the idea, I need to put this into a book, really happened. That is fascinating. I mean, I like just the idea of when you had that first conversation and he's like, well, why do you want to hear that? And he really didn't realize that there is so much, uh, so much knowledge, so much information, but yet so many fun, colorful stories that people can really relate to. And one of the things that I remember, and when we first started uh, having a discussion about having you on the podcast and you talked about the book was I used to like to go to the old air shows and at those shows, there would always be a couple of guys up there who were from the war and they would relate their stories and nice, colorful stories about, yeah, I remember that plane and we used to get in one of those and, you know, that used, we used to have a Dickens of a time starting it and, and all these little stories. And that was really a fun part of the show, not just seeing the planes. And I got to realize that a lot of these folks are getting older now and some of them, many of them are, are not around anymore to have those stories in writing. So for you, it's got to be like a twofold thing. Number one, you're preserving the stories of what I call and what many call the greatest generation, those who, who went in and fought this world war but yet you're also preserving a family history and a legacy for your family. And I just found that that was beautiful. In fact, I have chills, you know, as I think about it. It was rewarding in another sense, too. It finally gave my father and I a point for conversation. The more that he talked and the more that I wrote down and the more that I really listened, like you said earlier in the introduction, I wasn't thinking about making dinner. I wasn't thinking about the next task I had to do. I wasn't thinking about what I would say next. I was just totally locked in to the stories that dad was telling. I remember now looking back, I think I know when he really started to see me in a different light, And when our relationship started to shift, he did basic training in Miami Beach. And at the time, of course, nobody's traveling. So all of these hotels were empty. And these GIs were billeted in hotels in Miami Beach. And I said to him, I said, well, what was the name of your hotel? He said, I don't remember. And I said, well, do you remember where it was? And he said, yes, it was at the corner of Collings Avenue and something. And I said, okay, let me see if I can do some research and see what I can come up with. So I went on the internet. I found pictures of hotels that were in that specific area. I sent the picture via email to dad, and I would get a response. Nah, that's not it. No, that's not it. No, that's not it. Finally, though, the email comes back and it says, that's it. Good work. Love you, dad. And looking back, I really think that that is the point at which he started to trust me in a way that I always wanted to be trusted. And so when it came to 
listening to tragic stories about the war, he felt free enough to share that with me, even to share the ongoing nightmare that he had when he came home for three years. And later on, a flashback that occurred. I would say, I'm a psychotherapist, I would say that my father had PTSD. He was definitely telling me the symptoms that he had that would be now called PTSD. So when he told me about the nightmare, when he finished it, I said, Dad, do you know that nightmares are normal given what you witnessed? Here again, my lovely father, what the hell do you mean? <laughs> and I explained to him that there's a little part of your brain that latches onto memories and, and they try and work through whatever it was that you experienced. And I said, you saw some pretty horrific things. You experienced some pretty, pretty horrific things. So your nightmares were your way of trying to work that through. And I said, nightmares are normal for people who witness trauma. And it was like I could almost hear my father's shoulders drop. That after all of these years, someone explained to him that there wasn't anything wrong with him because he had those. It was a normal experience. And of course, that was something that wasn't known at the end of World War II. It is only much later in terms of psychology and therapy that we were able to define what PTSD is, post-traumatic stress disorder. So those kinds of things started to happen between us. And the outcome of that is something that I say frequently. I received the dad I always wanted, and he received the daughter that he didn't know he had. Oh, that's so beautiful. The listening gave me a historical perspective but it also gave me the relationship that I wanted. For me, the real gift was he waited for me to come home to be with him on his final journey. I tell people that I don't grieve the loss of my father the way I grieve the loss of other people in my life, my younger brother or my mother, for instance, because I was able to make sure that dad's last journey was exactly the way he wanted it to be. And to explain what I mean, I worked in a retirement community for a long time and learned a lot about doing an advanced directive. Well, there's a very special kind of advanced directive called the five wishes. It is one that appoints a healthcare agent and dad appointed me. It goes over all the questions about care that dad might or might not have wanted. And so I knew those kinds of things. But beyond that, the document asks questions like, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want your children to know? What do you want to have as far as a funeral or a burial? So I had all of this information. And when the EMTs were working on my father, Knowing all of that, I had the presence to call the hospital. Dad had recently gotten out of the hospital. And I said, I know there's a do not resuscitate order on his chart. Get it to the emergency room. They're bringing dad in. The doctor in the emergency room 
called the EMTs who were working on my father and said, you can stop. And so I was able to lay down beside my dad, put my arm over his chest. I told him I loved him. I told him I knew he wanted to be with my mother. And I did the thing that was the glue on our family. And that was to say the Lord's prayer in his ear. What my father had frequently said to me during the writing of the book and talking about death and dying, because we got to that, he said, I want to be carried feet first out of my home. And that's exactly what happened. He was carried feet first out of his home. So that thing happened as well with the writing of the book. And if it wasn't for those conversations, you wouldn't have known that. That's something. And when you were talking about that, I'm thinking how many of us were afraid to have those types of conversations with those people in our life because we don't want to think about those people not being with us. But I think it's so important that we we let those around us at least know, put those wishes, uh, and you referred to the five wishes, but put those wishes in writing so that when it happens, there's some comfort in knowing that you were able to follow through with that. Absolutely. When we were in the priest office planning the funeral, my elder brother said, well, gee, father, what goes on in a funeral? I don't really know. And I don't know what dad wanted. I said, I do. And I gave this list of the things that dad wanted to the priest. And so the funeral was arranged that way. Dad wanted his children or grandchildren to read whoever was comfortable. He said, you can choose the readings. I'm sure they'll be just fine. He said, but here's what I don't want. I don't want that thing where people stand up and talk about me at the funeral. If they didn't say it to me while I was alive, then don't bother doing that while I'm dead. He was kind of a character. And so it already sounds like it. Yeah, Yeah. no, he was. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. We honored his wishes from start to finish because we had had the opportunity to have those conversations. And you're absolutely right. People are afraid to talk about it. The nurse aides and nurses who worked in the nursing home sometimes would tell me they feel like or they felt like if they talked about it, it would send the message to the person that they were talking to that, it, that they wanted them to go when, when that wasn't the truth at all. And then the other thing that I discovered working in a retirement community is just how much the older folks wanted to talk about it. So I would spend time just sitting and listening here again, here's that theme of listening Mm -hmm. and they were tired and they hurt physically hurt. Their loved ones were gone. There weren't any friends around anymore. They felt that they had lived the life they wanted to live and they were ready and they just needed to voice that. So that, That also helped me a lot when it came to giving my father his voice with those things. Right. You know, one of the things that I tell people who want to do something meaningful in their life and volunteer is a couple times a month, just go to one of those, I hate to call them nursing homes, but for lack of a better term, that's kind of what they, they still call them, but or retirement communities or something like that and go, go there 
and maybe ask, is there someone here who doesn't get many visitors who I can talk to and just go introduce yourself and sit and listen because they'll talk and they'll tell you and you will not only bless them, but you'll be blessed yourself in learning about, you know, this particular person and you will really let your light shine in, in the world. It's very true. Um, the volunteers that we had at Frederick, that's Frederick Living is the name of the place that I worked. We had independent living, we had personal care, and then we had the nursing facility. And the volunteers we had, that was their purpose, was to spend time with people who may not have gotten visitors or whose family lived at a great distance. And they would tell you, that the work that they were doing was more meaningful, they thought, to themselves than to the people that they were listening to. So it, you're right. It's an absolutely wonderful way to volunteer. Let me make a transition here to something else, because we're going to go back to talking about your dad a little bit. But when you were a little girl growing up, how close were you to your father as a little girl? And do you remember any stories about him when you were growing up? I wasn't close to my father growing up. I have a feeling that that had to do with the fact that I was female. You know, he could take the boys fishing. He could take the boys hunting. But what in the world do you do with a daughter? So I think the generation had a lot to do with that. One story in particular, which is, by the way, in the book, is the fishing story. On a Saturday morning, dad was talking about going fishing with my uncles and taking my brother. And I overheard him and I went to the kitchen and I said, dad, I want to go. And he said, no, you'll only mess things up. And my mother said, oh, come on, Mike, take her. Now, what's it going to hurt? So I'm 10 years old. We go to the creek where dad went fishing all the time. We're walking along a really hard packed trail. There are weeds and rushes that tower over me. And then we come to spots where it's wide open and you can see across the stream, way across the stream. So we get to one of these and he stops. He said, this is where you're going to fish. So I already knew how to put a worm on a hook. I don't remember how I learned that. And he taught me how to cast and he put the, the bobber on at just the right length, you know, so that the worm was hanging where it was supposed to in the water. And he said, do you know what to do now? And I said, yeah, he walked away. He walked down the trail to where the guys were. And on his way, he said, don't call me unless you need me. I remember clearly being happy as a lark, sitting on the ground, you know, casting out, watching the bobber, daydreaming, of course, beautiful, bright blue, sunny day, nice breeze. Okay. So the bobber goes down. Okay. And then it comes back up. Dad said to wait. He said, don't tug until it goes down a couple of times. And then he said, be really careful about how hard you tug. Just give it a little tug. And I did that. And I knew I had a fish on the line. So I reeled it, let it go, reeled it until I had a fairly decent size. I don't remember what it was flopping on the ground beside me. And I called him and he in that gruff voice, what do you want? I said, dad, I got a fish. So he comes back down. He brings a stringer with him. Now, a stringer is a chain that has these hooks on it that you feed up through the fish's gill. You throw the chain in the fish back in the water to keep the fish alive. 
the fresher the fish, the better the taste. And then he went off and he said to me, okay, don't call me unless you need me. Well, I called him two more times and I said, dad, I got a fish. And his response was, do you know what to do? Yeah. I don't remember the drive home, but I remember standing again in the doorway of the kitchen and my mom's there. And she said, how was it? And I told her, was it fun? She said, did you catch anything? And I said, yeah, I got three fish. And now I'm standing up straighter, right? My shoulders are are in place. I'm standing up straight and tall because I got the fish. And she said, well, what did the guys do? Did the guys get any fish? And I said, no. When I looked back on that story, when I was writing the book at 10 years old, that's when I started, I'll show you dad. And Mm. I spent a good part, particularly in my teenage years and my young 20s, of getting into that, I'll show you. He and I would have some arguments with good old Italian loudness. And I didn't move him to think differently. And he didn't move me. On one particular occasion, my mother wisely said to me after one of these arguments, Yvonne, your father isn't going to change. If you want to have a relationship with him, you're going to have to go to where he is. He's not going to come to you. Now, my relationship with dad shifted after that. I didn't get into the stories that would cause an argument. I would ask him to do things for me. I worked on my own car, so I went home to use his tools. Uh, Those were the kinds of things, but it still wasn't that really close relationship that I wanted. That again came when I listened to his stories to Mm -hmm. write the book. And if I may, dad was in the hospital. It was Christmas time. This was something that happened to him frequently. And I truly believe because no, none of the family were around, he would end up in the hospital because there were people. And he was a character and the nurses loved him and they fawned all over him. So my husband and I went home to see him in the hospital. And when we were ready to leave, I had given him the first draft of the book. As I was leaving, I said, dad, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. And he said, what for? And I said, for your service. And he said, no, honey, I'm proud of you. You wrote the book. And so that little story tells, you know, just exactly how much our relationship changed from the fishing story Mm -hmm. to the hospital story. And and by the way, I was in my 60s when we had that visit. When you had that visit. Yeah. How, How soon was that before he passed? Well, actually, we drove back home. New Year's Day, he called me in the evening and he was in incredible pain. He was home. They didn't give him medication for pain. They couldn't. That's a hospital federal policy. I don't understand it, but it is. So I said to him, I'll find somebody to come and take care of you over the night and I'll be home tomorrow. And he said, can you take off from work? And I said, absolutely. And I said to him and I said, dad, we have to change from plan A, you living at home to plan B of us finding somewhere for you to live. And he said, I know. And he said to me, Yvonne, I'm scared. And 
it took me six and a half hours to drive home. I was home for two and a half hours and he passed away. That's why I said in the beginning, you know, he waited for me to come home. And underneath that, I really think that he trusted me to follow through with what we had talked about. Mm. I like what you said that your, your mom told you, you have to go where he is if you want to have a relationship with him. But not only did you go where he is in the present, but you went to where he was and you really got to capture who he was as a person and by listening and being genuinely interested in the things he had to say and not only listening, but understanding where he was coming from that put a bond in that relationship that was so close that he even shared the fact that he was scared as a man it's hard for men to express when we're scared. We don't want to tell people that, and especially a family member, and especially a son or a daughter, you know, and a daughter even more, because, you know, we've been brought up that we have to be the, the provider, the protector, and it's just something that's ingrained. And I know even in the modern generation, it seems to be less, but really it's something that's inborn with us. So for us to be able to show fear to someone, that is an indication of a real close bond. And it was all through you being able to take that time and to listen to him and to go where he was and know uh, your real father, who he was as a person. So I just think that's, that's beautiful. Uh, I would really like to hear maybe one of your, your favorite stories from the book. As I said about using dad's tools, I had a 1972 Dodge Dart with a slant six engine. Okay. And the car was sold to me by my cousin and it wasn't sporty, but both dad and my cousin felt that this was something really safe for me to be driving in. Well, at the time, my boyfriend owned an auto repair store. He taught me how to change the oil and change the spark plugs. So I called dad on the phone and I said, if I come home on Saturday, can I use your tools? Because I want to work on that car. He said, sure. So June, bright here again, bright blue sky, beautiful day. I backed the car halfway in. Wait, I, that's not true. I drove in halfway lifted the hood and started to work. And dad came out and he leaned on the front fender and watched because I felt like, did his daughter really know what she was doing? And was he there then to give me instruction if, if I was messing something up? But I continued to work. And he said to me, he said, you know, honey, he said, I wish you would have come to me when you were younger for advice. But I always kind of knew that I would tell you something and you wouldn't like it. So you always, you always went to your mother. And I said to him, I said, no, dad, that's not why I didn't come to you. I didn't come to you because you always yelled at me. You didn't talk to me. And 
that also was something that I can say shifted in my late 20s, my relationship with my father, you know, that his tone would change with me. And I can close my eyes and I can be there in that spot, in that garage, as if it were yesterday. So that's one of my favorite stories about my dad. And if we have time, can I tell you the story of how this all started? The quirky, funny, off-the-wall World War II story. I would absolutely love to hear that. And I'm sure those listening are really interested in that, too, because these these are the stories that we don't hear anymore. And with the way the world is going right now, and as we were recording this podcast, there's a lot of events going on in the world that are that aren't very good and happening over in the same areas where that World War II started. I think it's on people's mind. And I think the more we listen and learn from uh, those people in the generation that actually fought World War II, I mean, the quirky stories are fun, but they're a good way to get us interested in what happened. So I would love to hear that. And I, I think everyone listening would as well. Dad was a navigator on B-24s. And for your audience, it was dad's responsibility to get that plane to and from wherever they were going. I don't know the cause, but the third engine was out. They lost their third engine. And as I understand it, that engine also controlled the hydraulics in the plane. So they needed to make an emergency landing and they were flying over Freed, Belgium. And they radioed to do that. And they were told to go to Brussels. And dad, as a navigator, said, we're not going to make it that far. We need to land sooner. So they were told to land at Liège, Belgium. Liège, at that point, was a hospital base. And so there wasn't any room at the end. So the whole crew was taken by truck into the city, and the crew was billeted above a bistro. Not a bad spot. So the bistro owner came to dad and said, do you guys have American cigarettes on board? And dad said, sure we do. They carried cigarettes as a get out of jail card if they were downed. And that would be how they could pay to try and get their freedom. All right. So the owner said that they needed a truck. Dad commandeered one. In the middle of the night, they went out into the uh, countryside. There were hay bales, and the owner said, we need to push these aside. So they moved aside all these hay, hay bales, started digging in the dirt, and they unearthed cases of French champagne. That was loaded onto the truck, loaded onto the B-24, flown back across the English Channel to Rackheath, England, which is outside of Norwich. Dad went and got military police and said, protect this plane. We have top secret information on board. The French champagne was unloaded. Half went to the officers club. Half went to the non-com club. And it was enjoyed. It was enjoyed to the point that the base commander, Colonel Schauer, was perplexed at the condition of his men the following morning. Whether it was a training mission or a bombing mission, I don't know, but they were sent out again the following morning. And dad said all they needed to do 
was to breathe pure oxygen and that would straighten their heads right out. So that's the original story. That's the one that got me hooked. Wow. Yeah, that I I can see that, especially hearing that from your dad and just when you described it, I could actually kind of visualize some of these things going on around me. So I'm sure a lot of the book has uh, those stories and to the point where you could actually get involved and really feel that you're being you're being taken on a journey. You're there. Uh, you're in the presence of of these men that were just doing what they had to do. They were uh, probably all, I would guess, in their 20s and probably some even younger. Dad was 23. He was the old man on the plane. And what's interesting about my father to me is that he never would have had to have gone. Hmm. He had a presidential deferment. And his presidential deferment was because he repaired airplanes that young learning pilots, in dad's words, would bust up. So he literally had to petition to get out of that deferment in order to join. So that's what made it that he was 23 when he finally arrived in England. How long was uh, he in the service of the country? He went in late 43. It took almost a year for him to go through basic and training and all that kind of stuff. His birthday was February 45, and that's when he landed in England. So he was 23. Yeah, he was one of the old guys. Wow. Yeah. And you think 23 is one of the old guys. These were very young men. Uh, I am reminded when you tell these stories, uh, one of uh, my favorite books about World War II that I read was by uh, Laura Hildebrandt, Unbroken. And it's Mm -hmm. the story of Louis Zamperini. And the interesting parallel here is that Laura, to write that book, she sat down and had all these conversations with Louis and Louis would tell her all these stories and she wrote a book out of it. But now in your case, you were not only interviewing someone who had been to the war, but you were interviewing your own father, which makes those stories seem more personal. And not only were they part of our country's history, part of your father's history, you know, as they were in the case of Louis Zamperini, part of his history, but also they were part of your family's history and part of the legacy that you'll pass on uh, to, uh, to your family, you know, and this book will be there for generations to come. And I just think that that's a great tribute to a man who, who gave so much for his country. And I like also how you brought the post-traumatic stress disorder into that, because a lot of these, these guys, being so young, they, they had to deal with that and they didn't know how to deal with it. I'll refer back to Unbroken and that there was a big part in that book about that disorder to the point uh, where it translated into alcoholism. We didn't know how to deal with things back then. So I hope it's one thing that we'll learn in this generation is that anyone who has to go into the service of his country and, and do some of the things that, that they did you know, to be prepared for that and to be able to have someone to talk to and have some help when they get out. Oh, absolutely. And when you said, you know, how long did my father serve? Dad was in the reserves in the Air Force till 1969. So from, yeah, from 19, well, let's say from 1943 to 1969, and he came out with the rank of captain. That was something he said to me, he loved the service. He loved the structure 
of the service. He loved the he loved the rules. He loved knowing what you had to do, when you had to do it, that kind of structure. That didn't mean that he didn't rail sometimes against, you know, the Air Force and what he considered inefficiencies or inaccuracies or all those things. I have all his letters to my mother during the war. And when he came back to the United States, he was home for a month and then he was back in Sioux Falls, South Dakota thinking that he was going to go on to Japan. And then that war, of course, ended before that happened. But he did stay in until 1969. Wow. That says a lot about his character and uh, and who he was. I just think it's just so beautiful that by spending that time with him, that really gave you that deeper relationship. It still gives me chills thinking about those, you know, those conversations and how you're and how that bond grew between the father-daughter because a father-daughter relationship is definitely uh, a special one. So I'm just so glad that you had that opportunity. And I'm even more grateful that you had an opportunity to be able to write this book so that you can share those stories with the world. And with that, Yvonne, I'm just going to ask if people want to reach out to you or get a copy of your book, what would be the best way to do that? It's available at any online retailer, or if people have a favorite independent bookstore, they can go in and ask them to order the book. So it's available both ways. Do you have any type of website or anything like that if they wanted to reach out specifically? If anybody goes in to Google my name, Yvonne Caputo, and Ingenium Books, Ingenium Books is the publishing company, then they'll go automatically to that site. I don't have my own website. I let the publisher handle my website. They can also reach me at Yvonne, Y-V-O-N-N-E, at Yvonne Caputo. Dot com. That's an email address. And the last name is C-A-P, as in Peter, U-T as in Thomas, O. So it's Yvonne at YvonneCaputo.com. Thank you, Yvonne, for sharing today. And this has been a great discussion. And I always ask my guests this question at the end of an episode, and that is, what does being purposely positive mean to you? It's a trite phrase, but it's still nonetheless one that I think about. And that's when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. All of us are going to go through trials. It's a part of life. So it's, do we let those trials drag us down? Or do we learn something from those trials that make us a better person, that make us see things from a different perspective? I mean, even something as simple as you know, looking out the window and really acknowledging that it's a beautiful day and it's more beautiful because of the the work that you've done getting through whatever it was you needed to get through. I love that. That's a beautiful answer. When life gives you lemons. Yeah, I know that is an old expression, but it's really true. And life is really what we make of it and learning how to embrace those problems and turn them into something better. I really have enjoyed this conversation, Yvonne, and I hope people will reach out and I hope people will buy a copy of the book and read it, learn about your dad and just really embrace uh, the fact that we need to listen to those people around us and we need to develop those richer relationships. So thanks again for being on the podcast today. You're more than welcome. It was great fun. And 
You've been listening to Strive to Thrive, the purposely positive podcast brought to you by TonyWCoaching.com, where your greatest success is right in front of you. And you know, you may be out there and you may be wondering, how can I make a difference in the world? How can I learn to listen better? If you're interested, I can send you a free resource. Come to TonyWCoaching.com, download the free ebook, Strive to Thrive, and that will help you going in the direction of a purposely positive life.